This week, uh, I was in D.C. for some meetings, and we got to walk around during our visit around the National Mall of D.C. Perhaps many of you have been there. And as you walk through this kind of uh, an area in D.C., it's impossible to not be overcome with awe and with reverence and for respect as you walk past things like the Veterans Memorial, right, with 58,000 names listed on it of soldiers who have given their lives. It's impossible to not be overcome with awe and respect and reverence when you stand in front of the bigger-than-life marble statue at the Lincoln Memorial. You stand before this gigantic monument of this man. And then you go over and you look right and you see a second inaugural address written on three blocks of stone, right? You, there, there's a weight to it when you read it. Uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address was given just days before the Civil War had ended. With hundreds of thousands dead, the nation split on this issue, and the end of slavery in sight. Would you hear just some of these words from Lincoln's second inaugural address? One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. With malice toward none, with charity for all, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. You stand before a majestic memorial and look back at moments of history like that, and you are in awe. Right? There's a sense of pride that grows up in you, a sense of country. Right? That, that, that's our history. That's where we come from. You stand before a man like that, and you are inspired with pride, and you think, how good it is that our country exposed such darkness with light and eradicated this evil of slavery for the sake of freedom and independence, and for the sake of human dignity. Nothing like that will ever happen again. Nothing like that would ever happen again. And yet, perhaps the most morally appalling, perhaps the most brutal of practices to ever be known by our country in this land is carried out every day in the name of freedom. And that is abortion. I think when we hear that word abortion, there's a lot of things that go through our minds. Right? Immediately you hear that word and you, you might tense up. Because I think for some of us, we might think this is going to be political. This is going to be about Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. This is going to go down a path that I'm not comfortable with. Because I think whatever side you land on with abortion... All the fears and negative stereotypes of the church begin to come up in your mind. For others of us, it's a topic that we would just rather not discuss, right? We, we would rather ignore this whole thing, not broach it because it's uncomfortable. I, I think for me, for years, it's a topic I did not think about. It's only moments like this when I actually get to really consider this. Uh, because it's filled with such darkness and evil that we'd rather... Block our eyes, block our ears, turn away and walk away to avoid discussion. Because when you look at things like Nazi Germany, right? When you look at the aftermath of Nazi Germany and you see pictures of 
piles of bodies stacked one upon another. You don't want to look at that. You want to turn away, but it's when you look at those things that you realize how horrible these things are. And for me, for this week, I mean, I can't even look at some of the pictures that my wife brings home from work and the surgeries that she shows me. And I I force myself this week, as squeamish as I am, to look at pictures and watch videos that tore me apart. Because I think if I blocked my mind from these things, I, I would be blocking my conscience. And some of the babies I saw, some of the babies that perhaps you've seen on pictures and videos, some this small, some this small, with limbs and toes and tiny lips with no life in them. And as I was was preparing this sermon this week, I think this sermon has felt different than any other sermon I prepped. And I I told a couple of you, I didn't feel like just synthesizing this down to a 40-minute sermon and an outline and a couple of words to make you feel good or to give us some feeling like that was a good sermon. This has felt different. This was at every level gut-wrenching for me. It was gut-wrenching as I read and thought about the darkness of this world. It was gut-wrenching as I thought of my 10-month-old baby girl. And each night when I came home this week, I held her a little tighter and longer. And I think one of the hardest things for me this week was, it was gut-wrenching for me to think about you. Because in a room this size, chances are, several of us have been impacted by abortion. Either by having one, or encouraging one. And if you are in that place this morning, I want to take the freedom to say from the outset, if you are in Christ, God does not see you as that woman who had the abortion. He sees you through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is perfect. And because of that, God speaks over you what he speaks over his son, that in you I am well pleased. And so this morning, when you weep over this, would you hear this? When you weep over this, we weep with you. Uh, When you rejoice in the grace of Christ for you, we rejoice in the grace of Christ as well because it's the same grace that's been extended to us, to all of us, for every single one of our sins for which Christ was shed his blood and died on the cross for us, that is the same grace that we all are extended. And so this morning, we are a family, right? We, we do not have to be riddled and condemned with guilt if you are in Christ. Know that God sees you through Christ. And so that is really good news for us this morning. And so as you hear, I know this is going to be hard and I know it's going to be difficult. Would you know the grace of Christ is here with us? presence of the Lord is with us. And so we need to pray and we need to ask God for wisdom because we need it for our eyes to be open, for our hearts to feel, for our minds to know. And we need the grace of Christ to really meet us here this morning. And so would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer as we approach this topic? Our God, the heaviness of our hearts 
triggers for us the reality of what we are facing this morning. Death is real, and, and we are facing before us, and in our history, and in our country, and in our city, a, a, great, a great tragedy that we often do not know what to do about. We don't, we don't know how to respond in our minds or with our, with our deeds, and so God, help us. Uh, help us this morning to feel an appropriate weight of the weight of this evil as well as understanding what it means to receive the grace of Christ. We need help to understand how to respond as a church and as a people. Uh, would you give us all the grace and wisdom, Lord, uh, that mere man cannot conjure up? We need your spirit to work this morning in hearts to comfort, to, to reveal, to convict, to burden and, and Lord, we, we, we feel helpless as humans, and so God, we just ask that you would help. Help us, help us, oh God. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, we're going to be primarily in Genesis 2 and 3, the text that Lauren read for us. And as we work through this passage and the issue of abortion, we're asking two questions this morning. Uh, one high-level question is, why is abortion happening? Why does it exist? Where did it come from? So why is abortion happening? And the second question we're going to be asking is, what do we do about it? Why is abortion happening, and what do we do about it? So our first big question, why is abortion happening? Where did it come from? Why does it exist? In Genesis 1, we see that God creates man in his image. Man is literally meant... Right? The created man is literally meant to reflect God, to be like a mirror. When you look at a mirror, you're seeing your reflection. So man was created to literally reflect God as an image of who he is. That's why God has commanded humanity to be fruitful and to multiply so that his glory might spread throughout all the earth through the image bearers that walk amongst it. That is what God has created, and so their purpose is to know this God. To love this God, to worship this God, to enjoy Him, to reflect Him, to, to submit to Him, to be satisfied in Him. And God places this man and woman in a garden. And He tells them one thing, just one thing. Reading from Genesis 2.15. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me, otherwise just hear the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What is this mysterious tree that God has forbade man to eat from? Right? You're free to eat of any tree, anything that your eyes can lay on, that's yours. That fruit is yours, except this one. But it's a tree of knowledge, of, of good and evil. Wouldn't you want to know that? Wouldn't you want to actually eat of that tree? And so when you read on in Genesis 3.1, I think we get more insight as to why God restricts them from this tree. Genesis 3.1 says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And you hear this slithering snake with deception, with temptation in his voice say to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there it is. The reason that man is not meant to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because this tree represents the right and authority. It represents the right and authority to, to decide what is good and what is evil. And God tells them, that right is not yours. It's not your right. You have no authority. It does not belong to man. It belongs to me. And the serpent comes and tells the woman, listen, the only reason that God doesn't want you to eat of it is because you'll be just like him. Don't you want that? Don't you, don't you crave that? It's like one preacher put it. It's like God is like a flower, right? Beautiful, with, with aroma, sweet, beautiful to look at. But this flower, God, has no roots, right? He's independent. There's nothing holding him down. He's all on his own. And, and we, too, are like flowers, right? Beautiful, reflecting this, this God as image bearers. But we have roots. We have roots rooted in God. We are, we are not independent. We are dependent on this God. And it's as if Satan comes along and says and whispers in man's ear, cut the root. Cut the root and you'll be like God. And man thinks, I'll be free. I'll be independent, self-sufficient. I don't need any of these pesky roots holding me down. I can choose for myself. I can be on my own. So what happens? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it and her husband ate it. And at that moment, all of humanity falls. All, all of humanity falls because man wants to be God instead of enjoying God. And the root is cut and the man is free and independent of God. And verse 7 says that their eyes are now, they're now finally open. They're now fully aware. And what happens? They immediately realize that being separated from God does not make you God. It's deception. But it makes you realize how utterly ungodly you are and how naked you are. And how many things you have to bring on upon yourselves to clothe yourselves, to hide you from your own nakedness. Now that we're on our own, thinking that we are independent of God, can I ask you, who becomes the ultimate court of what is good and evil? What is right and wrong? There's no longer a God. There's no longer a creator. There's no longer an author of life to which I look to for, for meaning and for truth. There's no admitting that when the flower of the root is cut, I just fall to the ground and I'm, I'm withered. 
There's no admitting that the best possible thing for us to do is to worship God because He satisfies and because He is good. But instead, who's going to determine what is good? What is evil? What is worthy? What is beautiful? I determine that. It's me. I say so. And my ability to reason and to satisfy and to further exalt myself on the throne becomes primary. And though defect and corrupt and distorted as we are, we put our satisfactions, our preferences, our self-gratification, my rights, my opinion, mine, mine, mine. And ever since the fall, we've been like God. And how has that turned out? 30 million abortions occur in the world every year. That's conservative estimates. Since the ruling of Roe v. Wade in 1973 in our country, over 60 million abortions have occurred. The population of Texas and California combined. 3,700 babies are aborted each day in our country. That's one every 23 seconds. That means if we paused for 23 seconds, one more life would have been gone. In fact, 120 babies will have died within the time of this sermon. And I think we feel the weight of that. And... You look to science and you look to scripture and you wonder, is there anything to say? And I want to say the scriptures are not silent on the issue of abortion because it speaks so wonderfully about the value of human life. It celebrates the child in the womb. God says of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I consecrated you. Psalm 139, David says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Your eyes, they saw my unformed substance. In your book was written the days I would live before that day even came. God gives life and personhood, not when a baby leaves the birth canal, But no, there is a human being made in the image of God, knit together by God himself within the womb of a mother. And it's not just the scriptures that tell us this, right? In 1973, when Roe v. Wade was passed, you didn't have all these 3D ultrasounds and images for us to see what was actually inside the womb. Listen, many of you may have been there, and I've, I've been there. I've been there when my daughter, before she ever came out and I held her in my arms, before she started wailing at all, I saw her through a TV screen. We saw her heart beating and her blood pumping. I remember one visit just a few months in, me and my wife were there, and we saw her jolting. And she kept jolting over and over again, and we realized that she had a bad case of the hiccups. And we were so proud that she was she had the hiccups. And, and we saw a small, or at least we wanted to see a small little smile on her face. And her arms folded. We saw her push and stretch and fold her hands and you see life. Right? We can see that now. On May 23rd, 2013, 
public policy fellow and professor of neurobiology and anatomy, Maureen Kondik, presented universally accepted scientific evidence at a U.S. House subcommittee that children feel pain and recoil from it as early as eight weeks. Dr. Jaime Gordon, founder and director of the Mayo Clinic's medical genetics program, testified before Congress. I think we can now say that the question of the beginning of life is no longer a question for theological or philosophical debate. It's an established scientific fact. Life begins at the moment of conception. And so if not with biblical warrant, can't we just convince folks that life is existing within the womb. If, if people just knew that, right? If they, if they heard some of this, wouldn't they just come around and wouldn't abortion cease? And tragically, I think what we're beginning to realize in our country, without apology, is that I don't think it matters at all whether or not the child in the womb is actually a child. And this is going to be hard, but would you hear just a couple of things that have been said by folks who are for abortion, activists, presidents, people who are on the front lines of this work. Pro-choice advocate Mary Williams wrote in an article in Salon Magazine in 2013 titled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one less solidly pro-choice. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. A fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her, period, always. Pro-choice advocate and professor, a professor who lives right here in Philly, Camille Paglia says, I have frankly always admitted that abortion is murder. An extermination of the powerless by the powerful. We have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. The former president of Planned Parenthood says this, Faye Waddleton, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know what abortion is and that it is killing. So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. <sighs> Society does not weep over these children, not because we don't believe they are actual lives, but because we value and care more about our actual lives. Statistically, the, the overwhelming majority of abortions, when you take a, a, a stat, right, and you ask them, why have you committed an abortion? The overwhelming statistic is not the horror, the horror of incest or the horror of rape. It's not the horror of the mother's life being in danger. The overwhelming statistic is I simply did not want the baby at this time. I'm not ready for this. This will not fit my lifestyle or my plan. I do not want this baby at this time. 
And you hear that serpent in the garden again whispering, you are God. You determine what is good, what is evil and right and wrong. You decide because life is about your independence. It's about your freedom. It's about your choice. Because a child, especially unplanned, means your education may have to end. Right? It means... Your career may not advance. It means rides to baseball games and help with homework. It means changing dirty diapers. It means sleepless nights and unruly kids. It means financial strain. It means that your boyfriend may not be happy with you. It means that your parents may disown you. There's a lot of weight with this. It's not a simple issue. And the pressure builds and builds and builds so that if there is any way out, and if I have a choice, take me there and give me the consent form. And so the moral weight and the destiny of this powerless child within the womb is determined in a sad circumstance by a more powerful person outside of the womb. And our laws, our laws permit us to kill an actual human being because we have the power to do so. Listen, this is hard. And we're going we're gonna to make a turn soon. As we consider this darkness, this cuts against everything that the scriptures call us to. To love others. To count others more significant than ourselves. To lift up those who are weak and powerless. To lay down our lives for another but I see the fruit of that tree and it looks desirous to me and I want to eat it. It's my desires, my choice and I want to eat that tree. It's a delight. And as we've fallen into this lie that the world has told us, that, that the devil has told us how foolish we are to think that we can be God and cut ourselves off from our creator and be satisfied. So you have mass genocides, you have enslavement, concentration camps, oppression of every kind, and you have abortions. And yet in the darkness of this reality, do we just recoil and come into ourselves and become apathetic and feel like, a, 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 feel like you're just defeated in this, condemned in this? What then should we do about abortion? There's a lot more prayer. We need humility as we approach. There's a, there's a lot more prayer. There's a lot more consideration. There's a lot more creativity that we need. But I want to suggest three ways Christians, the church, might respond to abortion. And the first of those is to expose this work of darkness so that it might end. Ephesians 5.11 says this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. That scripture's call to us. It's hard to imagine, but could God do something through our prayers and through our efforts to expose these works of darkness, darkness so that generations later, maybe a couple of generations later from now, our grandchildren might look back at us and see that this was a dark stain in our history that is no more. 
in the Dred Scott case of 1857, the Supreme Court justices ruled that slaves were the property of their masters, so they did not have full personal rights or status. That was 1857. In 2017, the law says that the unborn are properties of their mothers and do not have any personal status or rights. In 1857, our nation was split down the middle on this issue and it seemed hopeless. In 2017, we find ourselves in a similar place with abortion. And yet, after years of pressure and hundreds of thousands of lives lost under the Lincoln administration, Dred Scott was reversed, and today there is consensus of it. And we look back and wonder, how did that happen? And we rejoice that that is no more in that way. Could it be that one day we might see the reversal of Roe v. Wade and look back with our grandchildren and say that we did not sit on the sidelines? as children were being killed. May God give us resolve to expose this darkness and, and put steel in our spine, believing in Him, so that wisdom and humility might come out and change might happen. That's one way. A second way to respond to abortion. What would it look like to be a church that loves and cares for struggling mothers-to-be? On Friday, while I was in D.C., I was eating lunch on, in the afternoon at a, at a sandwich shop. And it almost felt like the Lord was over me and with me in that time. And I'm, while I'm eating my lunch, I, over, I overheard a conversation just a couple of tables down from me. And the words that I heard in this conversation were abortion, justice, and church. Among other words, these words stood out to me. And so I'm, I'm eating this sandwich and I start chewing slower so I can hear the conversation. And I lean my ear over to hear what they're talking about. And I, I literally sit there for 10 minutes just listening to what they're saying. And this is not characteristic of me. You guys know my failures to step up when God prompts something in your heart. The Lord prompted something in my heart. And the Holy Spirit said, would you, would you go over to them? And I felt the Lord with me. I've never heard a conversation like this. And this week, as we're preaching on this topic, they're, they're talking and I walk over to them, and I say, with complete nerves building up in anxiety, I go over to them, I say, listen, I know this is going to sound weird. I'm a pastor from Philadelphia, and we're doing a sermon series on justice, <laughs> and we're preaching on abortion on Sunday. We're doing a forum right after that on foster care and adoption. I know this sounds crazy, but would you mind if I spoke with you just for a few moments? And for the next 15 moments, 15 minutes, we had a conversation where I was asking them, would you just allow me to know? And these were pro-choice advocates. They were activists. I asked them, would you let me know what your perspective is of the church and how we respond to issues of abortion? And can I tell you, it was deeply instructive for me. Because what they were telling me, and they were so respectful. And I, I feel like sometimes the danger in this whole thing is we see things on Facebook. We see things in the media. We have these images of people that we dehumanize people. But these were real people willing to have a conversation fully respectful of me. And they express their concern for the church. Their concern that we talk more against abortion and less about being for life. And it was instructive for me. Because I heard, yes. We disagree, and I, I think you're dead wrong about this issue. At the same time, what would it look for, like for me to hear from you, to be instructed by you, 
so that I might understand, am I seeing this whole thing wrong? Do I need to see something else in this whole argument? And we left, and I pointed them to a, an organization in D.C. that we just connected with that does foster care and adoption. And, and we ended, and I have no idea where that's going. But I was encouraged by that conversation. And as I came out of that, I, I was wondering what would it look like for this to happen over and over again for us? What would it look like for us to be a church that does not feel this way? In, in a recent LifeWay research study, 36%, it showed that 36% of the women in the U.S. who had an abortion were going to church at least once a month. Right? So there, there's people in churches. 36% of the women out there are, are having abortions and they go to church. And that should, not, that, should, that should put something in our hearts. Not to push away. This is another stat. Among them, 33 expected their churches to be condemning or judgmental. Half of them, more than half of them, would not recommend that a woman in an unplanned pregnancy discuss her options with someone at a local church. If this is how a woman feels when she has no other option, wouldn't it make sense that the false gospel of the abortion clinic would sound so appealing, saying, no one will see, no one will know, we'll take care of this for you. Seven Mile Road, what would it look like for our community to be marked by our love and support of women who have been met with an unplanned pregnancy? What would it look like for us to open our homes, our checkbooks, to throw the best baby showers and aiding these women to love and care for their children? What would it look like to build relationships with younger women who have had children out of wedlock who may feel stigmatized because of family and stigmatized because of shame and inward, inward guilt? Could God help us silence the whisper of the enemy and the allure of the abortion clinic promising to remove this promise in the womb, the inconvenience? Could we come alongside and love and care for women and say a radically different message? That Christ is with you. That the church is with you. That you can do this. May our church be a refuge for struggling people so they might be met with the grace of Christ and the love of the saints. A third way, I know we're going long, a third way to respond to abortion to care for the well-being of children who have not been aborted and need care. James 1.27 says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows and their afflictions. James does not see the issue of abortion to be responded to with just words and strong rhetoric. But the scriptures call us to this question. If you're going to tell a woman not to have an abortion, are you going to help that woman raise the child if she needs help? Because here's the reality. We don't all know the circumstances and difficulties that some women have to care for a child. If you're not there, if you haven't been there, you just don't know. I, I don't know. It's not always for a matter of just convenience, but real worry. Can I give a meaningful life to this child? And what we'd want to say is, no, it's still not worth it. Just have the baby. And James says, yes, but church, don't think your religion is just through your words. 
This is true religion. Care for those children. Adopt them. Bring them into your home. Treat them as if they are your own. Is this not what God did for us? We who are orphans. I think when we think about adoption or foster care, at least for me, I think of, for some reason, it seems like the work of superstars. Right? It seems like the work of people who have capacity to love and give and suffer beyond anything I could do. But would you know that the same God we point women to and families to for strength and care to not go through an abortion and have that child is the same God who can give us strength to care for children who are aborted, who are not aborted, who, who need care. The same thing that we tell them, we should be telling ourselves. God can give us strength. God can give you strength and grace for this. And by God's grace, here at Seven Mile Road, we're starting to see women and men say, I don't think I can do this, but I'm going to trust God for my strength. And I'm going to believe the gospel and preach it over and over and over again to myself so that I might anchor myself to it and say, I'm going to give a go with this. We're starting to see that. And if you stick around after church today, you're going to hear some of those stories of folks who have done this and are, are doing this right now, right now, this weekend. Stories of hardship for sure, but in them, stories of great beauty that give children hope and shout the gospel to our hearts and to the world. And so as we close, I want to point us to just one more thing. Abortion exists because of our desire to be independent from God and to be God. That's what we saw in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's what we saw. And we ourselves have been a part of and we've participated in this horrific act. And so our tendency because of guilt may be to work out of a need to gain moral standing. With God by doing the very things that we just mentioned. Those three things. To push back darkness and expose the evil of abortion so that it might end. To be a people that loves and cares for struggling mothers to be. To care for the well-being of children who have not been aborted and need care. But would you hear me, before we could do ever a single thing, God has already done something. In the garden itself, do you know what he did? Right after man cut themselves off from God, hear Genesis 3.15. God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and your offspring, and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Instead of saying to the woman, through your offspring, I am going to crush you for your sin. God says to Satan, this whole enterprise, through your offspring, I am going to crush Satan. God says to Satan, it will be the woman it will be the man. It will be through humanity. The woman who should have been crushed. I'm going to use her offspring to crush you. So that Galatians 4 would say this. God would send forth his son, born of a woman, born of a woman, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is the gospel. We don't do these things out of a need to feel better about ourselves. 
We do it because we've been done a great, great grace and work by Jesus Christ. And so we do. The same God who reviles the killing of babies also looks upon fearful, sinful people with unbelieving hearts, undeserving patience, and he, and he forgives us. He forgives us with grace. And not only does he forgive them, but he sends back sinners. He sends back thieves. He sends back murderers like us, adopted as his own to proclaim the gospel and to push back darkness in this world. And so this morning, sinner, would you plunge your sins into the overwhelming flood of the grace of God? And would you believe him to undo even the works of Satan in this world so that we might expose it by his power and might we hope and pray for something amazing in our generation and in the generations to come? We're going to close in prayer, and I'm just going to read this prayer. Would you bow your heads with me as we, as we pray? Most loving Lord Jesus, your loud voice and tear-wiping hand together give us the courage and compassion as we need to live as faithful advocates for human life. How we long for the day when death shall be no more. Death in all of its expressions. Today we are especially thinking about the death of unborn children. All of your promises are trustworthy and true. So we will neither despair nor retreat in the face of unconscionable evil and overwhelming need. Jesus, give us the gospel courage to rise and contend against the evil of legal abortion. Because you are making all things new with undaunted hope, and we will fight the good fight of faith for the children who are still being knit together in their mother's womb. There's a day coming when abortion will be no more. In light of that day, give us wisdom. Give us strength. Give us fire. Give us perseverance. Give us the sufficient grace we need to advocate for unborn children on this day in our communities and among the nations of the world. We also cry out for gospel compassion. Jesus, show us how to love and care for women and men whose stories are marked by abortion, either as victims or as agents. Only the gospel is sufficient for the guilt. Only the gospel can bring healing. Only the gospel can transform an agent of darkness into a warrior for justice and mercy. Jesus, we don't long for the day just for no more abortions. We long for the day of no more miscarriages. Sin and death have violated every domain of shalom, including the realm of birthing. Our hearts break for those families who would love a child to bring into this world for your glory, but must endure the pain of giving up their children before birth. Show us how to love and serve them well. Extend your tear-wiping hand through us. How long, Jesus, before the last abortion and the last miscarriage? How long, O oh Lord, until that day we also ask for courage and compassion to adopt the millions of orphan children who have safely made it into this world? May our zeal against abortion be matched by our zeal for adoption. Surely there is room in our hearts and homes for these precious image bearers of yours. Surely the gospel is big enough for this calling too. So with desperate hearts we pray in Christ's name. Amen.